Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Let's pray. God, I just acknowledge this morning how desperately we need you. God, if your presence is not here with us, your manifest presence, Lord, if you're not sending your holy fire and speaking to us, God, this is just a dry, boring waste of time. So, God, I'm asking that you would come. And, Lord, through the reading and the hearing of your word, through the announcement of your good news, Lord, you would break through any apathy and complacent, discouragement. Lord, you would reveal yourself in ways that completely transforms us from the inside out. Let us leave here knowing that we had an encounter with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Based on what Paul says here in this text that we just read, many Bible scholars have come to the conclusion that Paul must have been a golfer. If you play golf, you'll understand why. I mean, verse 15 perfectly describes my golf game. Every time I hit the ball, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. But I'm practicing what I would like to, what I don't want to do, and I'm doing the very thing that I hate. Pretty much sums it up. Of course, I'm joking. Paul was not a golfer. I'm not joking about my game, though. It is, it's pretty sad. But I call this is, is one of those dangerous texts because it is one that lends itself to sounding like what he's saying here could be any one of us. I mean, as Christians, we still at times struggle with doing what we don't want to do and not doing the things that we do want to do. And we're going to address that in a minute. But Paul is not describing himself as a Christian right here. He's describing what the law did in him before he knew Jesus. Last week in the verses before this, we talked about the purpose of the law and what it means to be set free from it. And if you'll remember, we listed three main purposes for God giving us the law. And here in this text that we just read, Paul is describing how these three purposes were fulfilled in him. First, we said that the law was given to show us how incapable we are at living up to it. That's what Paul is saying it did in him here. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee who was zealous for obedience to the law. He had a desire to obey it, but he says here 
that he was doing the very thing that he didn't want to do. He, he saw how he was incapable of living up to what he wanted to live up to. The second purpose we looked at was that the law was given to show us how sinful we are. In what we just read, Paul indicates two realizations that the law brought him to. In verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The law highlighted to Paul the fact that nothing good dwells in his flesh, nothing but evil. It revealed to him how sinful he was. And then the third purpose we looked at was that it was given to show us our need for Jesus. The law points us to him. After realizing what the law showed him about himself, Paul comes to this conclusion in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The law made Paul realize that he was lost and in need of saving, broken and in need of fixing, sick and in need of healing. This is the law fulfilling its purpose in Paul. It didn't show him how to live a better life in order to please God. It showed him how wretched he was. And then through that, it pointed him to verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law pointed him to Jesus and then he sums all of this up in the last line of verse 25. He says, So then, on the one hand, I find myself with my mind and serving the law of God, but in, on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. He's summing up everything that he has just said about how the law worked in him. And he's saying that although I agreed with the law in my mind and I wanted to obey it, the sinful nature in me caused uh, my body to actually rebel against it. Sin became manifest physically through my body. Now we move on right into chapter 8, which begins with the great news of the gospel. Verse 1, therefore, there's that word again. Remember, he's about to tie everything he is going to say with everything that he has just said in chapter 7. Since the law shows how condemned we are by sin, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Apart from salvation in Christ, we are all held to God's standard that was revealed in the Ten Commandments. Because of our sinful nature, it keeps us from being able to meet that standard, and so we are condemned. But when we put our trust in Jesus and know that He has met God's standard on our behalf, He releases us from that condemnation. Now, I just love verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, let's stop right there for a minute. What could the law not do? Well, up on the screen here, there's five things that the law 
cannot do. Number one, the law cannot motivate or enable you to live up to it. It actually motivates and enables us to rebel against it. Number two, the law cannot change your heart. I mean, it actually shows that we need a heart change. The law shows that we don't have a behavior problem. We have a heart problem. Behavior and obedience are just indicators of the condition of the heart. Number three, the law cannot gain God's favor for you. No matter how hard you try to obey it, God is not satisfied with good effort and good intentions. Number four, it cannot bring blessings to your life. And yet that is still the message that you'll hear today from some preachers. They'll throw up the Ten Commandments and say something along the lines of, if you do your best to obey these commands, you will find blessings in your life. God will bless you, and then they'll take some Old Testament scripture out of context to back that up. But the law cannot bless your life. One of the things we learned last week is that it does the exact opposite. The law brings a curse with it. And then finally, the law cannot save you. You don't make it to heaven by trying to obey the commands of the law. A great analogy is that the law works like a mirror. A mirror can show you that your face is dirty but it can do absolutely nothing to clean the dirt off. So the law shows us that we are sinful, but can do nothing on its own to take that sin away. And so in verse 3, Paul says, What the law could not do, God did. How? What he says next. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the law could not do, God did through Jesus. And so if we take these five things that we looked at, our motivation and our enablement for life, for living, is through Jesus. Only Jesus can change the heart. God's favor for you, his favor on you, is found only in Jesus. All the blessings in your life come solely through Jesus. Salvation is found in no one or nothing else but Jesus. What the law could not do, God did through Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I came to do what the law cannot. Now this next passage, verse 5 through 8, is the other dangerous text I was talking about. It's another one of those like we looked at back in chapter 6, that if we aren't careful, we can very easily use this to feed our flesh by taking this as some prescription for how to be a better Christian. And it's a text that's taught from a lot, but commonly done so uh, out of context. Let's look at this. Verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. First thing we need to realize about this is that when he talks about those who are according to the flesh, he is referring to everyone who is outside of Christ. He was referring to the lost. I mean, just look again at what he says in verse 4. He says, so that the requirement of the law might be filled in us. Who's us? Those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right there, he's describing those who are in Christ. And so those who are not in Christ are those who are according to the flesh. Those who are in Christ are those who live according to the Spirit. Verse 5 through 8 then is talking about the differences between these two groups of people. Going to church pretty much my whole life, I can't tell you how many sermons I have heard on Romans 8, 5 through 8. And nearly every one of them included those lists that I talk about talked about two weeks ago. They'll make a list of all kinds of behaviors that indicate that we have our minds set on the flesh, and then they'll list all kinds of behaviors that suggest ways for us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. And the whole gist of the message is essentially, don't do all the things on this list, but try as best as you can to do all the things on this list. What's ironic about a message like that is that it actually causes us to live according to the flesh. Because the emphasis is on our own dedication and our effort at not doing one list and trying to do another. It's all about what we do. But Paul's whole point in this passage here is that it's not about what we do. It's about what he says in verse 3. God did what God did. Romans 8, 5 through 8 is a descriptive text rather than a prescriptive text. It is not prescribing what we ought to do in order to be better Christians. It is describing the difference between those who are bound to the jurisdiction of the law and those who are bound to Christ. The reason why you can't take these verses and build a prescriptive lesson lesson on how to be a better Christian is because of what he says in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's a question. How do you know which of those two categories in verses 5 through 8 you fall under? Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. Based on the majority of the sermons that I've heard on this text, the way you know which one of those you fall under is which one of the things on those lists you do more. As in, if you do these things more than you are living according to the flesh, and if you do these things more than you are living according to the Spirit, it's all determined by your behavior. But what does Paul say is the indicator of which category you fall into? It's not about what we do on the outside, but about what God has done on the inside. He says, if 
the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, which He does, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, then the only part of verses 5 through 8 that applies to you is where He says, those who are according to the Spirit. The reason why we tend to think that this text applies to Christians too is because we can actually relate to it even though we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. I mean, maybe I'm the only one in here who does this, but there are times where it seems like I'm setting my mind on the things of the flesh more than I'm setting my mind on the things of the Spirit. Anybody else do that? All right. I didn't think I was only one, but I didn't want to call anybody out or anything. Even though we are not of the flesh anymore, we still tend to think and to live as though we are. And I've already talked pretty extensively a couple weeks ago about why we do that, so I'm not going to get into all that again today. But here's the deal. What Paul is saying here is not about Christians who tend to slip into sin every once in a while. In verse 5, he says, those who are according to the flesh, which we've already established as those outside of Christ, the lost, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The key here is what he means by set their minds on. The word that Paul uses in the Greek is the word phroneo. And phroneo means to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek, to strive for. It is a purposeful, intentional effort. It is living in sin, choosing to walk in sin with no repentance and no remorse. We've talked about how someone with the Spirit of God living inside of them cannot do that. You cannot knowingly walk in sin without feeling some conviction and then eventually repentance for that. This is describing those who still have that sin nature alive and well inside of them. And then he says, but those who are according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Again, he's using phoneo uh, here as well. It is a purposeful, intentional desire to live a life that glorifies God. This is the the desire that you have when your sinful nature is replaced by God's divine nature. Yes, you will slip into sin, but when you do, you repent of it. Your desire to live for Christ is greater than your desire to continue living in sin. That's what it means to have a mind set on the things of the Spirit. Let's read on. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. We've already said the law shows us that we have a heart problem more than we have a behavior problem. Once the heart is fixed, the behavior follows. 
I mean, what happens on the inside manifests itself eventually on the outside. This is something that we have got to get, that we have got to understand if we want our lives to line up with who we are in Christ. You see, I believe that we spend way too much time, effort, and energy focusing on what we do on the outside at the expense of what's going on on the inside. We waste too much time in church trying to learn better ways to manage our behavior rather than allowing Jesus to change our hearts and heal our hurts. Those are the things that will affect what we do and how we live, and I believe this is the Paul's whole point in the first half, half of Romans 8 here. The title of this message is The Motor That Moves the Parts. Let's say I get up for work one morning and I go out and I get in my vehicle to start the work to, to, to get there. I turn the key and absolutely nothing happens. Well, I've got to get somewhere. In order to get somewhere, my wheels have to turn. But right now, my wheels aren't turning. And so I get out of the car and I jack up the front end of my car and I inspect all my wheels to try to figure out why they're not turning right now. And I spend all this time checking all four wheels. Can't see anything wrong, so I get back in and try to start it. Still nothing's happening. But now I notice that none of the electrical things on my dashboard are coming on. And so I'm going to go try to address that. And so I take the panel off of the fuse box and I inspect every electrical fuse that goes to all these different things. So I'll try to start the key again, and still nothing happens. Now that sounds silly because that's usually not the approach that we take when our vehicles won't start. The first thing we usually do is pop the hood and look at what's going on on the inside. I mean, in this case, it's probably a dead battery. And so I need to replace the battery and get it fixed if I want all these other things to be fixed. But that is the approach that we tend to take with our lives. We spend all this time and effort addressing our outward behavior and trying to fix that rather than looking at what, be, what may be wrong on the inside. What is causing us to do these things in the first place? We know that even though that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we still exhibit bad behavior from time to time. And so we focus all of our Bible reading and our teaching on how to fix the behavior. When Paul was talking about the effects of the law, he said that although his mind wanted to obey the law, his sinful nature, the condition on the inside, caused his body to sin. The condition on the inside manifested itself on his outside. Now look again at verse 11 here. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In chapter 7, the power of that sin nature was the source of his body doing wrong. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says it's the power of the Holy Spirit that is the source of our body doing right. 
It is the motor that moves the parts. King David understood this concept well. Turn over to Psalm 51 for just a minute. David was someone God identified as a man after his own heart. David was someone who had his mind set on the things of the Spirit. But David also committed some pretty big sins. The worst one was probably when he took advantage of Bathsheba and then had her husband killed so that David could have him all to herself. Psalm 51 is David's response after being confronted by Nathan about that sin. And it shows how repentant David was about it. But I want to point out what David asked God for in his repentant prayer. In verse 8 he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. And let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David was sorry about the behavior that he did that the sin that he committed and he didn't want to ever do that again i mean he committed a horrific sexual sin but in order to fix that he didn't ask god to take that desire away from him he didn't ask god for accountability partners he didn't ask god to protect his eyes from lust He didn't ask for anything that addressed the outward behavior itself. Everything that he asked God for was addressing his inside. He knew that his sin was the symptom and not the disease. And so his prayer was essentially that God would heal the disease, that he would fix the motor that moves all the parts. You can have a dozen accountability partners. You can have the greatest internet safety monitors in place. You can take all the measures in the world to keep you from committing a sin that you may struggle with. And all those things are fine and good. I'm not saying they're not. But they won't do any good if the reason why you struggle with that in the first place isn't dealt with. If you still have hurts that haven't been healed, if you have anger, resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness in your heart towards someone, if you have lost your joy and gladness in the Lord, if you cannot see yourself the way God sees you in Christ, you may be able to manage your sin and keep from doing that for a little while, but all that inside stuff is eventually going to manifest itself again in some other behavior. We don't have a behavior problem. We have a heart problem. Jesus is the only one who can fix what's broken on the inside. We address the inside every time we focus on the gospel. 
understanding what Jesus has done and who you are in him changes you. And it is a change that affects absolutely everything that you do. He is the motor that moves all the parts. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for your grace and mercy in pointing us to, God, the issues, the, the, the root. God, I know we spend too much time just trying to fix the symptoms. And all the while, we're neglecting the cause. Lord, I pray for those in here right now who, God, have some heart issues that they need dealt with. Lord, I pray for those who just keep struggling and struggling with a particular sin. They keep repenting and then doing it again and repenting and doing it again, God, and it seems like they just can't find any victory there. Lord, I pray that right now you would just begin revealing the ultimate reason for all of that. What is that need that they're trying to meet? What is that desire there that they're trying to fulfill? God, we thank you that, Lord, your truth isn't complicated. That life really isn't complicated. It's pretty simple. It's all about Jesus. Lord, help us not to move away from that. Holy Spirit, I just ask you again to just come and just manifest your presence here among us. Lord, would you let the truth of your word just do its work in us, God. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.